welcome to another episode of Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I'm Bob Crossan, Editorial Director of the Endeavor Business Media Water Group and Editor-in-Chief of Wastewater Digest. Today, we will be talking about cloud seeding, which is the practice of stimulating the water droplets in clouds to produce rain. In the western U.S., where drought has become commonplace and water supplies are limited, there is a growing interest in using this practice to create another avenue of water supply. But does this practice pass the muster? Just how much water can be produced with cloud seeding? In this episode, Waterworld Editor-in-Chief and Talking Underwater co-host Mandy Crispin spoke with Frank McDonough, Associate Research Scientist of Atmospheric Science at the Desert Research Institute, about this 80-year-old technology that's gaining new traction. Today we are talking about cloud seeding with Frank McDonough, Associate Research Scientist of Atmospheric Science at Desert Research Institute. So Frank, there are different methods and different particles used in cloud seeding. What has the science shown to be the most effective practice? So the most commonly way to do cloud seeding, I guess we should maybe start a little bit, take a step back and talk about what types of clouds are, are actually seeded. So there's there's two types of cloud seeding. One, and, and this is for cloud seeding to increase precipitation. So there's two different types of clouds that can be seeded. One type of cloud is, is these winter storm clouds. These are when the temperatures are below freezing and the clouds contain water droplets that have not been able to freeze because there's no aerosols available for them to freeze onto. And so they remain as small water droplets and um, don't come out of the cloud as precipitation. And we're finding that these small droplets are, are related to air pollution in some regard too. They're, they're, they're there in most winter storm clouds, but when clouds are polluted with upstream pollutants, well, primarily from humans, they tend to have more of these small water drops and they're less efficient at producing precipitation. So cloud seeding, the goal is to introduce these sub really tiny dust particles that serve as a surface for these sub-freezing water drops to start to form ice on. And the based and the uh, an interesting fact of our atmosphere is that if you can form ice in these clouds that have water droplets, the ice will then start to grow at a lower humidity than the water drops. So the water drops will start to evaporate and freeze onto these newly formed ice crystals, and they grow into snowflake-sized particles and fall out where otherwise they would pretty much just move with the cloud and they would never be realized as precipitation. So cloud seeding, you're trying to create ice. That ice then slurps up the sub-freezing water and deposits it on the ground as precipitation. The second type of cloud seeding is is pretty much when the entire cloud's above freezing. And, and the way those clouds produce precipitation is some of the small water drops in those clouds need to get big enough to start to fall down through the cloud layer. So most of the air is rising in that cloud. The droplets are rising with it. And if a few of those drops get big enough, they will start to fall down and collect 
and crash into the other drops and then they'll stick to the drop and so you get the drops to get bigger and bigger and then eventually they will break apart and they'll collect more and more drops and and eventually you get rain to come out of those clouds and so they're seeded by introducing these larger water loving salt particles and and so basically the the water the salt particles will attract water the water forms around the salt particle and these you know we're talking very small but they're big enough to to get the drops to be big and then those drops will then start to fall through the cloud so you're artificially what we call broadening the size spectrum of the drops and so that's that's done in in more tropical kind of places where all the precipitation occurs in places that are above freezing. What we do is we mostly do wintertime stuff. So I, and that's, I, I don't work on the, the above freezing droplet stuff, but that is a way that, that clouds are, and that, that hasn't been done for as long. So the science relating to the above freezing clouds is, is a little less mature than the, than the cloud seeding of winter storms. And then in addition, we, th these clouds that have these sub-freezing water drops really, it, what, what, where we like to do our work is, is in mountains because as air, moist air moves off the oceans and over the mountain ranges, it's almost like a, a conveyor belt. And you have these clouds that have these sub-freezing water drops on the on the face of the mountains that last for hours and hours and hours. So we can seed them for 10, 12, 15 hours during storms and actually have a, a pretty good impact on the snowfall in, in the mountains that downwind of where these droplets are initially forming. So we call that orographic cloud seeding. So that's that's kind of the most common way cloud seeding is done in the western U.S. The aerosol particle that is used has is is this aerosol called silver iodide, and, and it's best. I like to just think of it as a small dust particle. It's a solid. It has a molecular structure that's very similar to ice, and that allows it to serve as a draw as a ice forming particle and the, uh, most clouds do have ice forming particles in them they're they're not anywhere near as common as the particles that allow droplets to form and in the western u.s the sources for those aerosols is typically places like the gobi desert so there'll be a windstorm over the gobi desert in asia a bunch of this dust gets lofted into the atmosphere it comes across the ocean and it serves to produce ice and storms in the in the U.S. Now these Gobi Desert dust though won't start forming ice until clouds are colder than about five degrees Fahrenheit, where the cloud seeding aerosols, the the dust, the silver iodide dust, will allow the ice to start forming at at twenty three degrees Fahrenheit. So you have this window of about maybe like what is it? 18 degrees where the, the silver iodide aerosols are creating ice where the natural cloud won't and so you can that that's how you can modify the precipitation amounts that are going to come out of clouds is by looking for these types of clouds and then somehow getting your dust particles into the cloud to create the newly formed ice so silver iodide is has been used for for 
geez, since the 1950s. It, it was discovered by um, Kurt, or Bernard Vonnegut, who's Kurt Vonnegut's brother. He was working on aircraft icing problems in the late 1940s, and they accidentally discovered cloud seeding during their experiments to try to identify when. So, so when airplanes fly into these clouds where these sub-freezing water drops, the water, the airplane itself actually becomes a surface for the drops to freeze onto. And so these drops freeze onto the wings of the airplane and they eventually can cause the airplane to not be able to fly. So they were studying that problem for aviation and they had this cloud chamber in their lab and they accidentally discovered cloud seeding and then Bernard Vonnegut discovered that you could use this silver iodide molecule that was very closely related to what what ice crystals look like and so they they tested it over upstate New York in the late 1940s and they actually discovered were able to clear create so they they went up in an airplane and they had a cloud below freezing and they were able to create ice in the cloud that only had sub-freezing water drops and they saw snowflakes falling out the bottom of the cloud and the second that happened every person in the western u.s where water is you know been a problem since the first people ever were in the western u.s we've needed extra water so they were like whoa if, if these guys are making extra snowflakes and we knew that if you could create this, the new ice in the cloud that you could grow precipitation if you had the right kinds of clouds. And so, so to this day, that's still the most commonly used aerosol. It's been studied very carefully. It's, it's a stable, uncharged molecule. It doesn't, it's insoluble in water. So there's been all kinds of environmental studies with this aerosol and it's been proven to be safe both through experiments, it, it has not been shown to be accumulating in the soils, even places like with 50, 60 years of cloud seeding, there, there's no additional silver in the soils compared to what, what's already in the soil, because obviously silver is a part of the earth. And so, so it, it's, it's been shown to be safe and it, and it does seem to work pretty well. So it, you know, that, that's anyway, long, <laughs> that was a 10 minute answer to your first question. So. Oh, that's okay. I think you answered several of my questions during that answer. <laughs> so I guess we've established then through that answer that um, it is safe and there's no contaminant risk or negative environment uh, effects from cloud seeding. Yes, and and there's numerous studies on that. So you know we can we can you know it, like you know it's because yeah there's there's been a lot of research on that and that's obviously the first question anyone would ever have is if I put this up is it going to come down and cause problems for the environment. I know, especially since we talk a lot about um, PFAS and uh, contaminants of emerging concern in this industry. Um, that's always everyone's first question is, is it, you know, what is this going to do? What is going to be the result, the end result of this? But like you were talking about, this, this has been around for almost 100 years now. But really because of the research that was conducted over the last decade, the question over whether or not it works seems to be, answered. We know it works now. Um, so what is the major question in the scientific community around cloud seeding now? I think well, I, I think that there's, you, you know, I, I think the people that have been in this field that knew it worked for, for many years, but the, 
the the real stumbling block has been when when you do scientific research you you know and cloud seeding's validated through statistics so when you do statistical scientific research you, you're really looking for 95% confidence that the extra precipitation in a cloud was caused by cloud seeding or not and and that's a difficult thing to do in an open atmosphere cuz you have natural variability in clouds you have different intensities of rainfall like you can see it raining across the street but not at your house and you see things like that and and so to try to show that that you know so that's just in, in nature so to prove that you're having an impact is is really difficult because you have all these natural variabilities in clouds so it, it's been proven for many for several decades that you can show with 90 percent confidence that this extra precipitation is from cloud but we really had trouble getting that to the 95th percentile now that's that's proving that there's more snow in a cloud seeded mountain range than a non-cloud seeded now now the other way we we do experiments is actually following cloud seeding plumes through the cloud system so you can actually fly airplanes in and measure watch what goes on in the cloud and see the changes in precipitation and so that's really there's been some real good research in the last decade on on that type of stuff where they actually you know there was a really nice study up in idaho done back about five six years ago where they had a a research aircraft with fully instrumented with cloud particle imagers and all types of atmospheric measurements and they were doing upstream cloud seeding and then this research aircraft was intercepting the cloud seeding plume and and trying to show what how the changes happened and then they they were able to visually see these changes now now people had seen that before but the the images are just so you know have gotten so good now compared to what you had in the 1970s and 80s that we, we really can see the differences and and then there was another nice experiment where they used a radar so radar as everybody knows there's a it's a way to shoot a the radio wave out when that radio wave hits particles in clouds they bounce back and the bigger the particles the more bounces back so you can see how big the particles are in the clouds and so they as part of this idaho experiment they froze a radar in onto the mountaintop and so they were able to scan the cloud seeding operations along with the airplane and and then they had some snow gauges and so they were able to see the particles get bigger then they were able to document how much snow was falling out of the cloud and then they were able to calculate and this was a cloud that wasn't producing any precipitation prior to cloud seed and they were able to put down you know, I don't know if acre feet is a term that that we can use in this discussion, but they they were able to put down several hundred acre feet in an hour. So I mean, they they showed some really good results, and and so I, I think it it's you know that that that's been some good research, and then also our our fundamental knowledge of cloud physics itself in the in the nineteen fifties. You know, w those guys knew some stuff, but compared to what you know this this field really had you know, unbelievable knowledge added to the not the knowledge base in, in cloud physics, although there's still some some significant gaps in our knowledge of clouds. So so anyway, the the you know the it's 
there's been some recent studies. There was a really good study done in, in Australia where they reached the 95th percentile of confidence, and they, they showed they had increased the seasonal precipitation by 14%. Now, one of the other problems is to, to do the statistics, you have to seed and then not seed. So, so sometimes they do the seeding inside the same mountain range. So they'll run cloud seeder, seeding experiment for one storm then not for another and then they will for and so yep and you have to do that for like six seven years to get enough data to do a statistical measurement and so most of the people funding the cloud seeding have no interest in in watching storms go by you need sort of a a funding source that that doesn't care about adding water and and so until recently, the the federal government hasn't stepped up to the plate. So a lot of the funding has been done more at the state and the local levels. And a lot of times those groups don't really want to pay for these big research projects. They want to pay to get more snowfall in their mountains and more runoff in their rivers. So so anyway, it, 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 that's been one issue. And I, I think the other challenge is that what you know ultimately what we're interested in is water coming down the mountain rivers and and converting snow melt into runoff is is a complex issue because if if you know say you get a decent snowpack but the soil's really dry well a bunch of that extra snow melt's going to go into the soil and if you're trying to measure stream flow you might not see it versus another year where if the soil starts out the winter and it's real wet and then you have a, a lighter snowpack you get more water comes down so so trying to find the extra water in the river is also challenging so i think if if you're initially skeptical there's maybe enough things out there for you to say, ah, hey, you know, I'm not going to trust this, but, but, but there, there, there's some, there's, there was a project in, uh, the big Creek, the hydro project in the central Sierra Nevada. It's run by Southern California Edison. And they've did a project there for almost 40, 50 years. And, and they got enough data where they were able to show increases somewhere on the order of four to 8% more water coming down the river during the cloud seeding years. And, and I believe that, you know, that's, you know, four or 8% more hydro power available. And then that water then gets used downstream for the farmers in the, down in the central Valley. So it was, it was a really good project, but it, it sort of has, lost its funding recently unfortunately so so there there are so there's enough evidence out there now that it works and then i you know i don't fully understand why sometimes the projects disappear or not it it seems to me like it were it there's enough evidence that it works and i think one of your other questions is the price so the price is somewhere on the other 10 to 20 dollars an acre foot to produce this stuff sometimes less if you have you know, where things like desalinization plants have, I think there's, once you have it built, it's several thousand dollars an acre foot and you have the brine water and then you hear kind of these ideas that are just, you know, that would never be able to be, probably be realized where they take like Mississippi River water and bring it over to Arizona and things like that, which, you know, that, that, who knows that that probably <laughs> would be astronomical like you know to try to do something like that so so i i i, I think it it's you know it, it's a tool in the toolbox that the and, and one of your other questions was you know like in a place that has limited number of storms how useful is it and and it it 
typically if you do it right and you you know the right people are doing it and they have the right equipment and they have the right weather up weather people that know how to do it i think that you can realize somewhere 10 to 15 percent more precipitation over the course of a winter if if so in a place that doesn't have many storms that's 10 percent more of not that much and and if you have you know a place that like you know that gets a lot of precipitation that's 10 percent more of, of more so it's it's kind of you know it, it depends but people that live in dry areas are a lot better at using their water than people that have big runoffs and just don't worry about it so places like the pacific northwest most years they they probably have plenty of runoff and they're not that concerned about water resources where you know somebody in the lower southwest you know extra 10 percent is is a big deal so i think that's kind of kind of the issue and, and so somewhere like the colorado river basin's been there, there's there's a pretty good size cloud seeding program it's in wyoming colorado utah all have cloud seeding operations that are serving the colorado river and then that cloud seeding the goal is to send more water down the river and down into lake mead and serve the lower colorado basin so so there is cloud seeding it it's certainly there's plenty of room for it to get bigger it it's just kind of there you know it's not not a deep pocket kind of project but but it it you know it it is done that's a good segue into uh one of my other questions which was um how does cloud seeding affect the bottom line at water utilities or how can it i did read that there is at least one utility who's contributing to cloud seeding operations so why are they why is that one invested and not more you know what 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 is the what what's the potential payoff for for water utilities and why aren't we seeing more more funding coming from them you know i but the the real answer i i don't know you'd have to probably ask them but but i i think what what i see you know i've been doing this for a while now and what i see is it when when it's wet you know, they, they want to spend their money on other important things like, hey, I got to repair this or I want to invest in this or that or whatever. So they they don't really want to put their money into the cloud seeding. And then as soon as they start realizing, oh, we might not meet our needs this year or, or you know, we're not looking good, then all of a sudden cloud seeding rises up to be an important issue. But then it's too late because you need the yeah. So, yeah. but you need to know, you know, know the climatology, got to place equipment, all this kind. Of, so it, it takes a little bit of time to ramp a project up. And by the time you start ramping it up, they might've gotten another wet winter. And so, so I think, I think just competing interests would be my guess, you, you know, but like I said, I, I think it's done. I think a lot of water managers do use it. It's just, you know, not on, not a deep pocket, but I think there, there's, there's a, good number of projects out there when you really dig down like a state like Colorado they have some of the monies provided by the lower basin of the Colorado state some of the monies provided by the state of Colorado and then then local water districts also contribute so they all are kicking in on these projects and, and they got there's a lot of projects out there but you know they're not well, the, 10 million dollars private funding the prod the the private funding was I was like oh of course because there it's a ski there's ski resorts right in Colorado that we need snow for so of course they would kick in some money because they need 
they need the snow <laughs> to run their businesses. Yeah, right? yeah. So that's the payoff for them. Yeah, I, I think that the, the like I, like I said, I think that there 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 was enough uncertainty prior to the past decade where they were kind of like, well, I don't, you know, I'm not positive, and it was hard for us to go to them and show here's here's all your extra runoff and. And so I think that that might have been the issue. And I think that, you know, the fact that the Bureau of Reclamation hadn't really been participating in funding cloud seeing in the past couple decades. And I think they're starting to see this new research and, and feel a little more comfortable about maybe putting some of their resources into this. So I, I hopefully in the next decade or so, we see some more federal money coming out and maybe they'll be willing to fund some of these bigger type of research projects that can continue to push the understanding of of how well it does work and you know i, I mean the main thing is you, you just have to you know you like like you have to do it correctly and then there's another topic that we probably should just barely touch on but it's called it's called inadvertent cloud seeding so like like we mentioned earlier all the droplets and crystals and clouds are forming on some type of aerosol or dust particles and inadvertent cloud seeding is when either human caused or drought or other things introduce all kinds of aerosols that get into uh -huh. these clouds and they change the efficiency so like droughts like actually like this nasty thing where like once it's there it's sort of like hurts the clouds ability to produce precipitation stuff. So you have a drought and then some storm comes in that 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 during the drought period it might kick up a bunch of dust and aerosol that then we know would... all about that here in las vegas don't we <laughs> yeah so, so yeah and, and then there's some some other issues like like for las vegas it, you might have some issues with the salton sea so the salton sea is is down in southeastern california and that that's been relatively full for the last hundred years and now some of the folks that had water rights that are over and over along the coastal areas have been pulling more water that used to be used for agriculture in that east southeastern so the salton sea has been shrinking and so there's all this tiny dust now where it used to be under the salton sea now is outside the water table area so you get dust blowing up on top of here. And then there's also urban urban areas too. So there's been a couple of good studies that show that just air pollution from our driving and just our everyday activities are also reducing the efficiency of clouds to produce precipitation. So that that's another topic. So cloud seeding in some ways may be offsetting these decreases which may make it even difficult to see the signal as well if you're trying to compare 1940 to where there was no cloud seeding to today you know but there's a lot more people and a lot more things going on and and you know so so it, it's tricky it, it, it and so i just think when when water districts are spending their you know, scarce resources that, you know, if they want to make sure that it, it's looking good. And I, I like I said, I, I see they are a lot more interested in it when they're having some some issues with resources. And so that that seems to be it's just an up and down kind of thing. And when it's wet, 
people are just kind of everything's great and we don't need to worry about this and what but what are the community you know I, i'm part of we just like to see let's just do it every year we put the equipment in once the equipment's in place it's just a question of running the, the equipment every year and we just run it and and if you have a dry year, you have a dry year. If you have wet years, you, you run it. But now we'd also have suspension criteria for, so for like winters, like this past winter, we, if the snowpack starts to get too big, we shut down the project because we don't, you know, if, if there's going to be excessive runoff, we, there's no need to do cloud seeding. So for a place like the Sierra Nevada, we shut down the projects in mid-December and never started them again because, there was just so much snow up there that it wasn't necessary to do cloud seeding. So we just, we had our equipment was sitting out there and it was ready to go, but we just never had this, you know, because sometimes you get a big boost burst and then it dries out in the second half of the winter and then we can resume operations if the snowpack drops back below, you know, the excessive level. So, so it, it's, it, you know, we know what we're doing and we just kind of, you know, but we just like to see, see consistent, funding for just letting this stuff go for year after year and and like like i said you know a lot of my sponsors are smaller water districts and and they it's hard for them it's a big chunk out of mm -hmm. like the you know silver iodide is 10 to fifteen thousand dollars worth of that just just in supplies and then you have to pay technicians to keep the equipment running you need meteorologists to run the equipment all winter and so it you know it's it's, it's not you know it's not ridiculously expensive but it's it's you know for a small water district it, it is a kind of expensive so they need some help and i think that that with you know some state and federal support they they are pretty optimistic about doing programs Wow, I have a million more questions now, but well, you got yeah, I'm, 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 I got some time. <laughs> well, I was thinking, um, so well, in years that there's excessive runoff, is there some way to save that water and store it for years that we? Well, yeah, you know, just by existing dam networks is is the only real way. Some some places are are doing some things, and you you may have heard of this. They they like places like Arizona and up here in Reno, they do this as well. They when the river's really full, they try to get pull water off the river and put it into the ground and and empty aquifers or places where there's places in the ground. And so they've got these geologists that have identified places where they can put water into the ground. I don't think they've ever had to retrieve it. So I don't know if they, how well they could get it back. But like Arizona's had been doing that, like, you know, when on years when they're, they had their full allocation, they would just take the water and put it into the ground with the hope that if they ever had a horrific, drought you know like we haven't gotten there yet but they could retrieve some of that ground the water that they'd taken off the river and put in the ground and, and use that as as to serve their water needs so so that is one way but the really the you know the existing dam network is all you really have and and most of those dams aren't multi-year storage they're you know maybe one good year and and then you know, some some places you, you can get a couple of years and other places have no dam. It's you got to have a good year every year. And and, you know, it's, it's today putting dams in isn't isn't really something that's done anymore. At least I, you know, they, they're taking out dams up in the Klamath now. So it's I, I, yeah, there isn't really any way to, to 
that I that I know of to store that extra water outside of what exists in these groundwater recharge. And then there's rules like you need to send a certain amount of water out to the ocean to for the fisheries and there's a lot of there's a lot of you know every, these rivers have all kinds of rules on them so you know they need to have a certain amount of water to keep the temperatures habitable for salmon to come back up the river and things like that so so there's you know some of it does has to go to the ocean but but like i said this on these big years you know a lot of it just heads out to the ocean and that hopefully evaporates and gets used mm -hmm. again in, in the future so well, okay. I think we should ask our listeners to stay tuned for a part two at some point because we'll have more questions about this for sure. And I'd like to thank Frank for spending this time with us. And thank you very much. Thank you, Mandy and Frank, for that really insightful interview on cloud seeding. I certainly would like to hear a part two. It sounds like Frank has a lot more information that he could share with us on the subject, and it was really fun to hear him talk about something that he's so passionate about. On to housekeeping. First, we want to alert you to a One Water webinar that we are hosting on PFAS on September 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Join me as I moderate a discussion between experts from CDM Smith, Corolo Engineers, and SCS Engineers about PFAS in the drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater markets. We will also discuss how each vertical can inform the other verticals for a holistic approach to addressing PFAS in water. Now for Waterworld, we have just finished publishing all the video interviews that were recorded at AWWA ACE 23, so whether you're interested in case study interviews based on presentations from the show or informative interviews from AWWA leadership, check out waterworld.com videos to find them all. And also, get ready for the September-October edition of Waterworld. We just finished up production, and it will arrive in your mailbox very soon. For Wastewater Digest, we have a collection systems webinar on September 14th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with Derek Schwanke from Garver. He will go over the technologies and considerations for inspection and rehabilitation of collection systems and what to think about when developing a condition assessment plan and asset management plan for this generational infrastructure. Finally, Stormwater Solutions is accepting nominations for its top projects. The nomination deadline has been extended to September 12th, so be sure to submit your Stormwater top projects today at stormwater.com nominations. And with that, don't forget to like and subscribe. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, or any other podcatcher that you use. You can reach us at talkingunderwater at endeavorb2b.com or on Twitter at TUWpodcast. Thanks so much for listening.